Okay. Hello and welcome to Access to Justice. I'm your host, Heather Malarick of Merrick Law. I'm joined today by my co-host, Evan Clark of Kahane Law. Hey, Evan, how's it going? Hi, Heather. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm good. I've had a an interesting week. I keep thinking that like things will settle down, but my youngest ended up with a concussion this week. So that's the first one with two boys, which is, um, I don't know, maybe a miracle or unheard of at this point, but, um, yeah. So I had a little bit of a wrench in the works this week, but he's feeling better. Yeah. How did he get the concussion? Um, the short story is fighting with his brother. So yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I sense there's some underlying things there that maybe you don't want to air on the podcast, which I respect. <laughs> the details aren't important, you know? <laughs> um, I went hunting on Monday and Tuesday. Well, I went Saturday to Tuesday or Friday night to Tuesday out by Hinton area, just north of Hinton. And um, I got a black bear. Wow. You killed him? You killed him? Killed. I killed her. <gasps> yeah. He shot her. I took her skin off. Got to save that. It's illegal to let it go to waste. And uh, at home, I'm rendering her fat right now. And all her meat's been processed is in the freezer. Okay. I think I'm going <laughs> to cry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> Well, you don't have to say anything, but uh, I know it. Maybe it will trigger some of our listeners. I don't know. But um, if you eat meat, then, uh, you know, the best meat you can get is meat that's grown literally wild and free, not raised in a pen. And, uh, I've never had bear before. Well, that's not true. I think I've had like somebody gave me some bear sausage one time, but I've never, I've never, uh, harvested. That's the euphemism we use in the hunting world. Never harvested a bear before. So, um, but I hear their meat is like a cross between, uh, pork and beef and very good. And this bear was munching on berries. So, um, I think it's going to, I'm pretty excited. Interesting. I've never tried bear meat either. Well, play your cards right, Heather. <laughs> hook you up. Crystal, are you are you a vegetarian? No, I am not. I am a meat eater. And, you know, you're right in that if you're going to eat meat, it's better to eat it, you know, from the wild. But just the idea of a bear, female bear with cubs, I don't know, that makes me want to cry. There were no cubs. There were no, it's illegal to shoot. How do you know there were no cubs? Because they would be with her. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. She was all alone for a long time. I had enough time. I didn't have a bear tag when I saw her. I had enough time to buy the bear tag because I wasn't going to shoot her illegally. That's called poaching. I had enough time to buy the bear tag uh, before you know, then lining up the shot and it was a good shot. She died within seconds, right through the heart and the lungs. And uh, she lived a good life. She lived a good life. And she was, yeah, it was, a, it was amazing. I was not expecting that. Like I didn't have a tag cause I wasn't going out looking for bears. Right. Um, so it was pretty remarkable. Huh. Huh. That was well, the only success we had. So, uh, it's a good thing. Hmm. The rest of it was a lot of walking around and not seeing very much wildlife. Hmm. On, that, yeah. on that pleasant note of death. 
you know i know i says i don't disagree with you although i think that if i were to go hunting i probably would become a vegetarian i that's my hunch about myself so <laughs> well i i saw my uncles who are hunters in trinidad where i'm from slit a pig's throat and drain the blood and i became oh. a vegetarian for about five years after that mm. but then you know no. <laughs> I got a burger or something, and then yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that creeps creep back in. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, that's the thing about uh, about hunting is one of the things I like about it is just being in touch with that experience because it's not just like just eating the meat can just be you just take it for granted, but when you have to kill it, like even though it's it's an animal taking a life is still taking a life, and it's something like it's mm-hmm. an experience to have, and it makes me appreciate appreciate it much more oh yeah my uncle told me that he's like if you can't watch how this animal's that di- how this animal dies you shouldn't be eating it and i was like well i'm not eating it <laughs> it <took me> like <laughs> Fine, five man. years yeah and then i went yeah. to like i don't know some you know something and then i was like nah. yeah. i can't i i just I, I i've tried i i can't be a vegetarian i've really really tried i've tried several times throughout my life i just i always i mean maybe i can i mean people say can't and you really can but i've tried i you know it's just There's no, like nobody's requiring you to, to give up meat. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you know, like this isn't a podcast about the, uh, ethics of, <laughs> of hunting or food. Uh, we don't want to get too sidetracked, but I understand it's a polemic topic. Yeah. And especially when you talk about, you know, uh, the charismatic super fauna, such as bears, especially grizzly bears and wolves and even deer, uh, so I, an elk, like I understand people get emotional and, and it's a topic that a lot of people take very seriously and would be abhorred that I have shot an animal, but we don't want to alienate anyone, but you know, that's what I did this last weekend and I'm paying the price, Heather. I took two days off Monday and Tuesday and, uh, I'm like getting hammered now hmm. at work. Yeah. All yes. like the emails and everything. I thought you meant karmically because you took the life of a bear, but no, that's no. not what you're referring to. Okay. <laughs> that bear, that bear is in bear heaven, living the best life. Um, well, I do have a little segue maybe because Evan, you uh, offered up the fact that you had a tag and I was in a true lawyer fashion was not going to ask you a question I didn't want the answer to of whether or not you had a bear tag. So um, maybe this is a good point to introduce our guest. Uh, we have Crystal Lawrence here today. Hi, Crystal. How are you doing? Hi, good. Crystal is uh, a dear friend and former co former co-worker. Um, she's also a family lawyer and has been called to the bar for 14 years and has worked in a couple of jurisdictions, including Nova Scotia and here in Alberta. Um, and she also does some criminal law and immigration law. And I think we're going to touch on those two areas a little bit today. Um, but uh, we have you here today, hopefully to give us some do's and don'ts um, if you're going through a family law matter. So uh, uh, we're so excited to have you here and to share some of your tips. So welcome. Thank you. So um, I'm just going to kind of delve right in. I sort of thought about this from 
A couple of different perspectives. So I thought about, you know, if your family matter involves custody disputes, a custody dispute and perhaps property, right? Um, so I thought a little bit on the property side first, because we as lawyers kind of see property as fairly academic, just because you're really just following the rules and the legislation. And it's math, you know, is what it really comes down to, except when you get to some issues. Mm -hmm. um, but from a, from a client perspective, you know, sometimes that's number one, probably all there is, especially if you have, you know, adult kids or no kids. Um, but also sometimes that's really what's more important because some people are relying on their property settlement to fund their custody. Right. So, um, so it is, you know, it is an academic for clients. Um, so we do have to think about do's and don'ts when it comes to the property stuff for clients, because, we might see it as gathering disclosure and sort of doing the math, you know, the matrimonial property statements and sort of crunching the numbers, knowing and, and perhaps um, taking for granted that we know the law. But for the clients, you know, sometimes they're really panicking. So I just kind of thought about those first and I don't have a lot of them. So I just wanted to, to do that part first. So with the property, um, I just kind of wanted to talk about um disclosure. So don't try to hide income or property. A lot of people watch a lot of TV with all these tax haven countries like Bermuda and Bahamas and Cayman Islands. And they think, oh, well, I'll just put it in my company's name or I'll transfer it to my spouse or I'll, you know, transfer it to my mom or like all these things because people watch too much TV. Yeah. And sure, like depending on if you have multiple corporations and if you're Elon Musk and you have a whole bunch of, you know, different subsidiary companies that might work, but the average family client, that's not going to work. So, right. so I guess the first don't is do not take legal advice from TV. Um, the second <laughs> one is <laughs> do not try to hide income. You know, a lot of people think, well, if it isn't there, it won't be found. But the problem with that, and this is where sort of my criminal um, context comes in in this, is that the problem with that is if the other side knows about it, or even if they don't know about it and we catch it, we as lawyers catch it either in questioning, which is a form of cross-examination. It's sort of in-house cross-examination in a lawyer's office as opposed to in a courtroom. But if we catch something that looks suspicious and we eventually figure out that you've hidden something, it affects your credibility significantly. Um. And the problem with affecting your credibility in a property matter is that anything that was kind of sort of teetering on could go either way in property because the courts have quite a bit of discretion and, and the Family Property Act, you know, does have particular sections that give the courts a particular discretion on how to interpret things. You might find yourself landing on the side of the court deferring to the evidence of the other side because now your credibility has been shot because you've tried to hide information, right? So people think, well, I'll just, if it's found, I'll just say, oops, I forgot. But it actually affects your credibility because wow. it looks like it was intentional. Um, and there are cases where it wasn't intentional. Uh, for example, I had a file where the husband had a prof corp and he was quite successful, but he comes from a family, um, an immigrant family where culture Culturally, their 
his parents tended to put a lot of their investments in like his siblings' names, his names. You know, they had a couple of apartment buildings. Um, they were immigrant family that had really built quite a bit in Canada and were quite well off. And all the kids were professionals. And because they all had prof corps, it made sense to kind of put certain assets in some of these prof corps. And so he really wasn't aware at how many smaller investments were, you know, in his name because it was either you know, just kind of put into his prof corp or it was put into his name personally, but it, he acknowledged that it wasn't his, it belonged to his parents or whatever. So when filling out his disclosure, he just didn't turn his mind to those things. And then in questioning, it came out because obviously there was dividends being gotten, et cetera, in his taxes. And it came out. And while that didn't ultimately didn't affect him because he was able to amend his documents to reflect all these things he didn't think about, uh-huh. in questioning, he came across as someone who was trying to hide assets, right? And that did affect his credibility a bit. Um, had he not corrected it immediately, I think that that really would have been problematic by the time we got to the summary trial. Um, but he did correct it immediately. Within a couple of months, he was able to get the information from his parents and disclose it. And I think everybody all agreed that it belonged to his parents and not to him. But, but we had to you know, take those extra steps. So, and as lawyers, we don't know what we don't know. So if you don't tell us that exists, we're not going to know to ask you about it, right? There's certain things for sure we bring up, like, you know, certain investments, typically people have, you know, RESPs, et cetera. There's certain things we know to bring up, but I'm not going to know if you have some interest in some apartment building in downtown Edmonton, right? That's not something I would know to ask. Um, So, so you have to offer that, right? So that's, um, that's one of the things. The other don't, I would say, is don't agree to divide property without it having documented and formalized, right? Either by way of a consent order or some kind of binding agreement. Because the problem you get into on both sides, if you're trying to enforce it, you run into problems later with enforcement. And if you're trying to change it later, there is an argument that a verbal contract is still a contract. So either way, you're not running into significant litigation costs after the fact. Just, and I know, you know, people say this all the time and it it is a tried and true point. Property and family is like contract law. Get it all in writing. When you make these agreements, they're effectively contracts. And when you go to enforce them, they're treated like contracts. The same principles of contract law apply to minutes of settlements, um, property matters, and divorce proceedings. So even though it's family law, um, family law is a type of civil law and contract law plays a part in it, um, especially here. So that's kind of just my quick tips on property. I don't want to spend too much time on property, but, um, you know, I, I think, um, I think those are good points. Another point I will make though, is that if you're still in the crux of your divorce, don't rush to buy new property. Alberta has some unique legislation. That's a little different from some of the jurisdictions when it comes to, you know, um, assets being counted as matrimonial property or joint, um, community property that may not exist in other jurisdictions. And so, um, you know, don't rush to buy more property when you're in kind of the heat of your divorce. You know, if, right. if, if it's a really good deal and, you know, there's things that we can do, but if you could hold off, I would say hold off. Um, it's probably worth mentioning that um, each jurisdiction governs their own law and property as in each province does. So property isn't a federally regulated 
area of law, right? It's provincial. So Alberta can't tell you what to do with your property in BC or in Ontario, but they can take it into account. So that vacation home in Barbados or whatever you have, that's going to be accounted for any matrimonial property statement in terms of discussion. But Alberta can't dictate what you do with that property. They can't tell you to sell it. They can't tell you to mortgage it. They can't tell you to transfer it. So keep that in mind when you're dealing with your property, right? You're not going to get a full sum resolution if you have property in other jurisdictions in terms of the logistics of what to do with that property. It'll be right. taken into account when doing calculations and et cetera, but the actual after effect of the logistics of what happens with that property is governed by that jurisdiction. So don't assume, so I guess that's another don't, don't mm -hmm. assume that your modern Alberta is going to you know, have all of um, the logistical things that you need to do with property resolved, right? right. Um, so do make sure and disclose any out of province property though, um, yeah. and valuations and mortgages and stuff like that, right? Even out of country property, do disclose that. And that includes investments. Do disclose, you know, any offshore accounts or whatever, right? Um, if you have a timeshare, that's not really property, it's more of a debt, but still disclose it anyway. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. I think that's an important point is that um, even though divorce is federal, uh, that property division is uh, provincially regulated. And yeah, as you said, the courts can't make an order about um, an apartment in Paris. <laughs> yeah. But it needs to be disclosed and talked about here when you're talking about the property division. Yes, it, it does. And and part of the thing for that for a quick sort of you know property law 101 for your viewers is that the Divorce Act deals with everything but property. The Family Property Act deals with property. So the Divorce Act you're looking at, when you're on the Divorce Act and you're dealing with a divorce, you're looking at custody, child support, spousal or partner support. Like those are the things you're looking at, right? You're not dealing with property. So even though when you hire a lawyer to deal with your divorce, you're dealing with your property, with your matrimonial property or your community property if you were never married, you're under two pieces of legislation at the same time. You're under the Family Property Act and under the Divorce Act or the FLA, right, when you're dealing with your lawyer. So even though your lawyer is dealing with it all at once and might send you documents to respond to, that's all part of your divorce, you're actually under multiple pieces of legislation. You could even be under another piece of legislation. You know, you could be, if you're trying to sell the home, you could be under the Salem Partition Act. Like there's a lot of things mm -hmm. that you could be under simultaneously, even though it's all parts of your divorce. So keep that in mind, right? So when you're, when you're saying I'm getting divorced, it all depends on what your issues are. Some people get divorced and their only issue is custody. Some people get divorced and the only issue is property. Some people get divorced and they have everything. They have, you know, all the whole gambit. Um, so just keep that in mind. And, and your lawyer will obviously explain that more, but I think it helps, it helps people to think about, um, why the why the property matter and the do's and don'ts of property are distinct from the do's and don'ts maybe of a custody matter, right? Mm -hmm. So I'll go into the oh the other thing I wanted to say about property too is keep a record of any gifts and loans. People do not do that. You would be surprised mm -hmm. how many people get significant cash gifts or even land. I mean, I have right now with a farm property and there was a gift of two quarters 
of land that has exponentially increased in value because the gift was in like the 1960s and nobody can trace and the gentleman who gifted it has now passed away his Mm -hmm. wife is still alive so we're gonna have to drag this 92 year old woman into court to talk about the fact that her husband gifted this property but you know and and again that's where the criminal parts in comes in because i need to go and get an affidavit and video recorder to preserve her evidence in case she passes away before this goes to trial like mm. because nobody kept any documentation of this gift yeah so keep those things you never know you know when they could be important, right? Um, so any gift, loan, financial help from family or friends, statements showing any money coming in and out of your account, um, any gift letter, any contract, um, all of that stuff, keep all of it. Even if it's a card that says, Merry Christmas, hope you enjoy this 5K, love dad. <laughs> keep, a, keep that card or take a picture or something. That's right. Yeah. Right? Is it to Susie and Kevin or just to Kevin? Right. Yeah. 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 Or to my loving daughter, love dad, you know, mm-hmm. that, that means it's to you. Right. Mm-hmm. So keep, keep that stuff. Um, yeah. So I think, I yeah. think I've kind of covered the property stuff, unless Heather, you think is anything else you want me to specifically mention? But. Yeah, no, I think that's a great tip for people who are not facing a separation and divorce, but like buying a home together. Like you said, like, uh, yeah, we commonly see parents gifting some money towards a down payment, but then 25 years later, at that moment, you can't conceive that you would forget how much they gave you, whether it was 50 or $75,000, but time fades memories. And then, yeah. And then you're kind of stuck, not, um, with no documentation there. So yeah, a little note to file even can be helpful with the date and, and, uh, and something to show what that gift was. Yep. Which Mm -hmm. takes me to my other do. So one of the do's I had that I personally really like, and I guess this works for property and for custody. So I'll kind of transition into custody Uh is, um, do keep a journal for your lawyer right or for your you know for yourself when you start to see issues coming up in your relationship um it doesn't have to be in an actual little journal diary it's not their diary to the you know my husband made me mad but (laughs) significant things that happen documented basically i'm calling it a journal but documented some way um and make sure that there's something that suggests that is contemporaneous so this is again where the criminal background comes in because when you're in the heat of litigation you're less credible if you've documented it then i mean it's you can still use it don't get me wrong but it's more credible if you can show let's say a calendar that you kept a couple years ago that backs up your information now right um even if it's some little thing you kept on the fridge you know or notes or emails you had sent to yourself you know back then or if you did actually keep a journal or anything like that because just like in criminal where officers are required to come to court with their notes that are taken contemporaneously with an arrest and that makes the officer more credible that's kind of the same thing in family right because when you're in the heat of litigation of course people exaggerate right so you could come after the fact and say oh they never did anything with parenting i've been the primary parent because i was the person that always did this and i'm the only one that did that but the problem with making those extreme kind of statements is that 
the other lawyer only has to find one time that you didn't and your credibility is shot. But if you have a calendar or journal or something, even something from the school or, you know, if you kept the kids activities on like a whiteboard at home or, you know, whatever it is, your little patterns are at home. I mean, you must have something that keeps you organized or keeps your family organized. Keep copies of it. Right. Um, Now, I want to say most people don't get married contemplating divorce. So mm-hmm. it is it is odd to ask somebody throughout a relationship that has been going well for years to keep something like that because it sounds like you're plotting. And I do appreciate that. I understand that. But sometimes, for example, especially with our generation in this era, you just have things electronically. Like my, for example, Gmail, I think goes back to like 2008. Right. So I'm sure if I had to come up with something to do with, if I was a parent, which I'm not, but if I was a parent, I had to come up with something to do with parenting. I could probably do a search in my Gmail and I'll probably get emails from the school, emails from kids' activities, stuff like that, that would make me piece together stuff, right? Yeah. Same thing with my cell phone. I keep, I have a personal cell phone and I have a work cell phone. So my personal cell phone, if I lose that, I don't know what I'm doing tomorrow. Same thing with Mm. my work cell phone. Everything (laughs) is in my calendar, right? So you could go back and, you know, now phones go back a lot of, so, I mean, it's going to take work, text messaging, WhatsApp messaging. If you're saving stuff in the cloud, go and cross-reference those things, right? And that is what will give you those contemporaneous notes, right? So I'm not saying keep a journal in anticipation of getting divorced from the time you get married. No, I'm not saying that. That'll be a little toxic. But definitely once you know that you're going to go see a lawyer, start putting those things together, which takes me to electronic evidence, right? Electronic evidence is treated in a very specific way under the Alberta Evidence Act, right? So the section of the Alberta Evidence Act that deals with that mirrors the Canada Evidence Act. And so what that basically means is the legislation is the same across the board, pretty much, right? No matter what province you're in, because the way it works is that if your province hasn't addressed it, then the Canada Evidence Act kicks in. But if your province has, then you use the legislation of your province. So if you're in Alberta, you'll use the Alberta Evidence Act, but the section is basically the same. It's worded pretty much the same when it comes to electronic evidence. And what it basically says is you need to be able to authenticate it and you need which basically means you need to be able to say that i got this from a reliable source and it was not edited in any way right so if you're pulling something from the cloud there's ways to do that now where you could pull it down it's already date and time stamped right apple does it samsung does it there's third-party applications that do it so do do that and gather that for your lawyer because they will be able to go through it and pick out what's relevant and what's not right obviously you're going to have some common sense too you're not going to pick out you know your personal doctor's appointments necessarily, unless there's a domestic violence allegation or something, or somehow that's relevant, but you might pull out, you know, maybe all of the messages that dealt with all the times you asked him to, or her, (laughs) you know, I'm I'm assuming it's the mom and dad and the mom is the primary caregiver, but sometimes the dad is all the times you asked him to participate in a particular activity or pick up the children or whatever, anything that would support your claim that while at home, you guys were both, you were the primary caregiver, even though you were both involved or, you know, whatever your claim is, right? So you do have to back that up a little bit um, because often the situation I run into is that when you have two people who've been living in the same home before one person leaves and establishes a status quo of primary care, there's an argument as to who is the actual primary caregiver when you were in the home. And that's particularly relevant when kids get a little bit older, maybe not so much with babies, um, but when they get a bit older and you sort of, 
as any person who leaves the relationship, um, unilaterally establishes a primary care um, situation that is that becomes the status quo due to court delay. Um, by the time you get into a fulsome hearing of the matter, that is a question, right? Is your primary care status quo sort of unilaterally imposed or was that actually the case the entire time, right? And that's important for a lot of other legal tests and family law when it comes to custody. So um, so I would say do, do do that. Do try to cross-reference electronic evidence with your story because we're in an age where there's a lot of it. There's mm. Facebook, there's Instagram, there's Snapchat, there's WhatsApp, there's, you know, text messaging, there's phone calls, there's email. There's a lot of different ways to kind of buttress your story, right? And courts don't like to be inundated with it, yeah. but your lawyer will pull out the one or two. I try to stick to like no more than five. That's relevant. And when I pull them out, they really have to be like smoking guns. I don't pull out like, you know, just back and forth or arguments about, whatever, who's picking up the kid. It really has to be something that is a smoking gun, but that's my job right. to, to find the one that really helps you, right? Your job mm -hmm. is to collect it all and then sort of give it to me, right? So I say do do that. Sorry, Crystal, before we move on, um, I can hear our uh, normal special guest, Kim, saying, uh, I heard a lot of lawyer talk. Can you tell me, <laughs> can you translate what you'd mentioned sort of the status quo and that unilateral sort of status quo that might happen by the time you get to trial? Can you explain that a little bit more for listeners that might not be sure what status quo is okay, and sure. how that's relevant? Just a quick, uh, a quick little quick, primer. Yeah, I'll try to be you know, brief with that. I know so, it's not the easiest thing yeah. to explain necessarily, but I can hear, I can feel Kim here with us asking for more yeah. clarification. I think I can be succinct with an explanation on that. So unilateral basically means on your own, right? Without the other person's involvement. Status quo basically means as is, right? So if you on your own, take the children from the home for whatever reason, legitimate or not. I mean, the court may find that it was not, right? But you subjectively, as in, in your own opinion, you felt that this was a situation where you had to remove yourself and the children from the home, whether you're the husband or wife, and you then have the children in your care most of the time, which is what we mean when we say primary care, right? So most of the time you have the kids in your care, and if that is established, AKA that carries on for a few months, mm -hmm. you create what's called a status quo of primary care. So you yeah. have a period of time of the kids mostly in your care after you've left the home, thereby creating what we call a status quo of primary care. Like and a why new is that normal kind of like thing? Like a new normal, yeah. Like you've now established a new normal. Now to you, it may not be a new normal because your position may be, but even when we were together, I was the only person that did everything. So right. this is just me carrying on what was happening anyway, except now I'm out of the matrimonial home or out of the you know community property or whatever it is. So to you, it may not seem like you're doing anything different. But, but legally, when you have people who are living together, the presumption is that there was co-parenting, right? right? The onus is actually on the person who leaves and wants primary care to kind of demonstrate that it wasn't, right? So, and, and that isn't written anywhere. That's just what it is. Unless you have a person who like works out of town and was always gone, that makes it obvious, right? But if you have somebody who was home every night, 
and had the same schedule as you. You both work nine to five. You both come home every night. You both, you know, there. the presumption is going to be if you were both available and you were both at home, it's likely that you were both co-parenting, right? That may not be the truth, but that's kind of this presumption. So even though to you, it may seem like you're just continuing the children's normal life, to the court, there's a question mark there. They're like, hmm, did you take these children away from a parent that they're accustomed to seeing every single day and interacting with and engaging with and a parent who was co-parenting, right? And, and so the onus kind of becomes on you because the court's view is that children have a right to both parents as much as possible, as long as it's safe to do so. So they're starting with that presumption that the kids have a right to see their other parents. And so if you're unilaterally taking away that right, i.e. you're taking you're on your own without consultation with anybody, permission from a court, consultation with your ex-partner. You're taking away these children's right to be able to see that parent every day when they've been seeing that parent every day for the last five years or 10 years or however old the kids are, right? Yeah. So if you think about it that way, you can appreciate why that's such a major thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and nobody's saying don't do it if it's unsafe or you're experiencing domestic violence or yeah. you know, you've just, you know, had enough and you've always been a primary caregiver. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying it It then sort of shifts the onus or the onus then is on you as the person who's done it to demonstrate why, which takes me back to collecting that evidence, right? Yeah. Um, of course, I forgot to even mention this because I'm so focused on new age and how we deal with things. There's always old school evidence too, right? There's always like paper <laughs> stuff, right? Like you might have documents from the school that only has your signatures in, signatures on it. You might even just have a teacher who says, I've only ever seen mom, or I've only ever seen dad come to the school, all right? We've only ever interacted with one parent. Like all of that is evidence too. I just kind of focus a little bit on the electronic stuff because we're in an era where- yeah. People will leave their, their, will quicker forget their child at home before they forget their cell phone, right? That's the era we live in, right? Somebody might forget to drop their kid to school, but they're never going to forget their cell phone. So because we live in that era, like a lot of the times, a lot of the evidence I see now is, and, and even email is considered electronic evidence. Anything that was done using an electronic device is electronic evidence, right? right? So, um, so yeah, another do I was going to raise that is a little controversial with family lawyers, but it is an actual way to gather evidence and it is legal to do is you can record so you can record in your home the court has justice pentelachuk has spoken quite a bit about discouraging surreptitious recordings in family matters and using it in court surreptitious recordings that's a term that's taken from criminal law and surreptitious is just a big word meaning without anybody knowing right so secretly that's that's all it means right, right. but there's a whole you know, um, lack of jurisprudence on that issue, right? Whether or not surreptitious recording should be used in court. And that comes from criminal law. A lot of things, rules and evidence-wise, that we use in family law and civil law in general actually starts from criminal law. If you go back to even disclosure issues, Stinchcomb, all those cases, those are actually all criminal cases, right. right? And they kind of established the rule and then that trickles down to the rules of court and family and to how we practice today. But if you really like follow the train of where those where those things come from, it actually all comes from criminal. And so this whole issue of surreptitious recordings, it's not that it's illegal. People worry that they can't do it. You can do it. It's whether or not the judge is going to listen to it. 
And so I don't want people to feel discouraged about secret recordings because in Canada, it's the same, it's reflected in the Canada Evidence Act and it's again also in the Alberta Evidence Act. As long as one person consents to the recording, you could record. So if you're the person recording yourself and your partner, you give consent so you can record. You don't have to announce to the person, by the way, I'm recording this phone call or by the way, I'm recording this conversation. You can record it. That's legal. You're not doing anything illegal, right? So do do that if this person is particularly abusive or whatever it is that you're trying to prove. If you're trying to prove something in property and they add admit that it was a gift or something and you have the recording. The issue would then be when you go to court, obviously your lawyer would advise you when you bring it and you know let you know if this is useful or not. But if your lawyer does find it useful, they will go to court and do something called a voir dire with the judge, which is a little mini trial within a trial. And the judge will determine whether or not that's going to be deemed as evidence. And if it's one of those smoking gun things, like somebody admitting, yeah, I know your dad gave us this 20K as a gift, but, you know, I'll, I'll, it'll be a cold day in hell or something before I let you get this money. That's, that's a smoking gun. You could use that in your property trial, right? And their response is going to say, well, I didn't know you were recording me. But the judge is going to be like, too bad, so sad. I think it's relevant. I'm going to accept it, Right. But I previously mentioned Justice Pendelechuk. She gets into the public policy reasons around why she doesn't like using recordings in custody disputes. Um, So be very wary of that. And that's where your lawyer comes in, because your lawyer is going to tell you, look, I think this is okay, but I think we're probably going to alienate the judge if we use this. Let's rely on some other evidence. But if you have something great, like a parent yelling and screaming and banging a door while a kid's in a bathroom cowering and you recorded the whole thing, a judge is going to let that in. They're going to yeah. want to see it. They're going to want to let it in. But if it's you and your partner going back and forth and arguing, that's not relevant unless you've yeah. got something in that argument that was particularly, you know, groundbreaking, right? Yeah. So you're, or if you're just taking a video of your partner drunk on the couch, pictures will probably work better. Take a couple of pictures, take pictures of the bottles, take pictures of the drugs, whatever it is. You don't need a recording of that, right? Um, so... So I, I, uh, I had a file once where it was pickups and drop-offs that were an issue. And right. my client had taken some audio of, you know, you could hear the car door open, you could hear the kiddos talking in the background, and then you could hear him just going off on her. And um, it wasn't just, it, it was so much more effective to hear the tone in his voice on top of just the words that, you know, ended up in the, tra- as the transcript, right? Like just hearing the words that he was saying, um, not the nicest things in the world, but hearing the tone of voice on top of it was, was that much more effective. Um, but judiciously, right. Not every recording or every situation is going to be compelling or convincing, I guess. Right. Right. Is that kind of what I'm hearing you say? Yeah. And you have to keep in mind as I mean, you, that was kind of what I was going to segue into is that if you're going to be doing that, you have to keep in mind that the judge already knows that you knew that you were going to be recording. So you're you're going to be on your best behavior. So you might have caught right. the person yeah. in a rage, but the judge doesn't know what conversation you had earlier. Maybe you texted him before he came and said, you know, mm-hmm. you better be here on time. Da, 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 da. Your mother's, you know, a piece of work, whatever, whatever. Who knows yeah. what you said, right? Yeah. So that's why, that's mm. part of the reason why they aren't given some weight because the person who's recording often knows they're going to start recording mm-hmm. and the other person knows they're not being recorded. I find the best recordings... The surreptitious ones are ones that are 
the full conversation and conversations that kind of start off normal and the person goes off, right? Mm. Or ones where people, where it's not surreptitious and people know they're being recorded and they just can't help themselves. Yeah, right? okay, you know yeah. Being, yeah, right? This was you the run. latter where it actually wasn't surreptitious. She just was audio recording every pickup and every, drop yeah. off as a matter of course because it just had become this pattern. So, right. And yeah. those are more compelling, right? Because mm-hmm. if you know, as I said to, I said to a judge once, if you can't be on your best behavior knowing that you're being recorded, which is the equivalent of like being in church on your best behavior or being in a government building or being mm-hmm. at court. If you can't tell yourself in those places, imagine what this person is like behind closed doors. Right. And I think that's why it's relevant and compelling. Right. So anyway, all of that yeah. to say, I don't want people because people watch a lot of TV and they think they need consent from somebody in order to record. And I just want to unequivocally say, you do not need consent. You can record whatever you want. Mm-hmm. It's just whether or not it will be used. So yeah. That how convincing is, it's going to be at the end of the day for the judge. Yeah. And if it's even relevant, right? Yeah. Because, you know, you have to get a fire to use it, which is permission from the court. There's a lot of hoops you have to jump through to even use yeah. it. So if you're going to do all of that and pay your lawyer, that better be, you know, the best recording that's, that's going to be played in your matter. Yeah. Um, okay. So that is that one. Um, just you guys let me know if I'm going too much into criminal stuff here, but again, it informs so much stuff in family. So I I wanted to, like, I've been very uh, quiet here. I wanted Mm -hmm. to say something. Sure. So first of all, the, uh, you talked about, I want to go back way back to when you're talking about journaling. Oh yeah. So one option that can be helpful, especially with when it comes to property, and that can prevent any need for journaling is you get a contract while you guys get along and like each other. <laughs> we call this a marriage contract. If you're not married yet, but you're looking to get married, a prenuptial agreement, or if you don't have any plans to get married, but you're living together, a cohabitation agreement, they're all the same thing. And that can eliminate the need to journal because it can provide like some really specific rules that kind of make it so everything is clear and nobody has to worry about, Oh, well, if she leaves, she's going to take half my stuff. Or if he leaves, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have nothing because everything was in his name and nothing was in her joint names and whatever. So it's one of those situations where you have to pay a lawyer up front, but that can eliminate, you know, surreptitious journal keeping about, property. I don't know. What are your thoughts, Crystal? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I, I didn't raise that because I was speaking more in the context of things that happen during the marriage. Typically people don't update their cohab agreement or their prenup every single time something happens. So for example, I had a client who they had a prenup, um, but her father passed away and she had no idea there was an inheritance to get. So she got an inheritance like 20 years into the marriage. They didn't go up update the prenup to include the inheritance, right? So the Family Property Act informs what happens on inheritance. But why I say she needed to journal is because the inheritance funds was then used to pay off a mortgage, which is then transferred into commingled with matrimonial property, right? So what she did was, thank God, is she kept the bank statement that showed the money coming from the lawyer's office to her bank account and then to the mortgage so that we could prove her exemption, right? So her first thought wasn't to run and try to update her prenup. Her thought was, let me keep all these lawyer documents so that eventually I could show where all this inheritance money went. And that was smart. That was actually more helpful than if she went and necessarily updated it because 
mm. proving an exemption is a different legal test than necessarily enforcing a prenup agreement, right? So that's why I was mentioning journal, but you're completely right. I mean, a lot of the assets that you have, especially now, a lot of people live together or get married um, with more assets than they did in the generation before us. A lot of people in the generation before us built together, right? Uh -huh. In our generation, a lot of people are coming in with student debt. They're coming in with, they own their own condo or they own their own home or their parents bought them something or whatever. And I think that's just a reflection. And so the Family Property Act has, you know, taken that into consideration. Even, even the um, Matrimonial Property Act did, right? The Section 8 factors looked at that and said, yeah, we, we do have a society where people are getting together a little bit later. Not everybody's getting married at 17 and 18 or, you know, 19 and whatever, 18 and 19. People are getting married or cohabitating in their 20s or in their 30s when they already have things. So yes, of course, a prenup agreement or even after you've already started living together, a cohab agreement. Um, you can even get a post-nup agreement, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're rare, but you can do that after you're married, you know, a year in or whatever, you can you can do a post-nup agreement. Yeah, it isn't sexy. Yeah, it's definitely not sexy and it's very unromantic, but it is definitely something. You know, you know, I disagree though. I think it is sexy and a little romantic. <laughs> Because, so hear, hear me out on this one. I know it might be a stretch because right away you're thinking like, okay, how, how can it be, how can I broach this topic with my partner without sounding like I'm planning on ending the relationship? Right. But um, if we can first accept the premise that it's a fact that divorce is quite common today. Right. Uh, I think that's where you have to start. Not that you think you're ever going to get divorced. Of course, then why would you even start? Um, but accept the fact that it is possible that you end up in a divorce mm -hmm. and then think about, okay. Um, one of the biggest causes of divorce I hear, so they say is financial. Yep. I agree with that. So if that, if those two things are true, then it follows one of the best things you can do for the relationship to make sure it lasts is establish some clear guidelines on your finances. Mm -hmm. And then that might even give you a better chance at not ending up in a divorce. And Evan, I completely agree with you, but I feel like that way of thinking works for people who have similar incomes. When you have someone who's making $500,000 a year and someone who's making 40, that line of thinking doesn't really work because the person who is making the half a million dollars a year is coming in with a, I need to protect myself attitude. And it's very hard for them to finesse that. And the person who is making 40 is on defensive because they're going to say, well, you want me to continue not building myself, raising your children while you continue to make the money that you're making or vice versa. But it's typically the woman, especially in Alberta. I worked in a couple of the provinces and Alberta has a unique situation because you have all these guys who work on the rigs who are not particularly sophisticated, sophisticated, financially. yeah, or, sophisticated financially or legally. Yes. Or formally educated or anything like that, but they make a ton of money. Right. Uh -huh. And so that is a unique, the only other place I experienced something like that was in Nova Scotia with the fishing industry. You have these lobster fishermen who actually make quite a bit too. Um, and same thing, they're not particularly sophisticated. They're not particularly, but the culture of East Coast is very different from the culture of Alberta. So I didn't have quite the resistance that I had here. A lot of these guys, you know, they're just either not receptive to 
legal advice pre-relationship or they've been through multiple separations um, and have a very, what's the word I'm looking for? A very conservative view of how much support they should be giving to their new, new partner, right? As in, I know this is how much I make, but I don't care what she yeah, sacrifices yeah. or what she no, does. Nobody wants to pay spells. I'm not giving her anything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so that's kind of what I've seen. So I, I think you're right in a lot of ways, but um, I do think I, I can personally speak, having, having worked and lived in other provinces, Alberta is unique. <laughs> it's definitely unique. Yeah. Well, I, I would say like my uh, line of logical reasoning there may be sound, uh, other people may not see it that way. Right. And yeah. so, um, of course you might have to do a bit of a sales job, but you know, and, and there's, there's an assumption like anyone that's like, Oh, I don't, I definitely don't want to do one. I think there's an assumption built in that the agreement is somehow going to screw someone over. That's not yeah. the idea. The idea yeah. is that when you guys, when, when you like each other, you're much more likely to come to an agreement and come to one that is fair. Yep. Right? Yeah. And so many of the prenups that I've done just basically um, capture what that premarital assets are, right? Yeah. Essentially, and it's an agreement for that so that there's no, there is an argument about that in the future, right? And the thing I like about it, Heather, too, is it, it just gives them the opportunity to make rules, clear rules about, like, okay, if this property is in my name alone, it's mine. If it's in your name alone, it's yours. If it's in joint names, we're going to share it 50-50, no matter yeah. who contributed or whatever rules you want. It doesn't right. have to be that. Yep. Uh, I, I certainly have other clients. I just finished one where it was like, here's our starting point that we're bringing to the marriage. We're going to do whatever we're going to do with our finances as a sole financial unit. And so it's going to mess everything up. We're not worried about, we don't want to worry about tracing and doing all these things that you'd have to do in Alberta for the property. We just want to manage our finances in the best way possible as a family. And if we ever break up, which we're not going to, but if we ever break up, then we're just going to, each person just gets the value they brought adjusted for inflation. And so that allows them the freedom to just, make decisions about finances in a way that's not going to limit them because they're thinking in the back of their mind, okay, well, but this is in my name. So I'm building up my personal property that he or she is not going to have a part of it eliminated all that thinking for these people. And they, they can just, um, without, uh, without endangering the finances, the, the financial situation that they're bringing to the relationship. Both these people had, you know, more than a hundred thousand dollars they're bringing to the relationship one more than the other but you know both of them had things that they wanted to make sure that they were protected but without you know creating difficult situations acrimonious situations financially in the relationship so i thought i thought that was a great approach but yeah it, yeah. it gives them total freedom to decide when you like each other what how do you want to deal with property yeah, that and that's that's true. That definitely works. It just doesn't. I just find, in my experience, it doesn't really work with the person who is more or who is less likely to um, have their assets increase during the relationship. They want to 
especially if they're going to be sacrificing. Like I had one, for example, where the wife ended up um, taking care of the husband's dad um, who was, you know, ailing and moved in with them. So she woke up every day. She cooked for him. She took him in and out of his wheelchair. She also, there's no compensation for that. So if she had just stuck with, well, I get what I brought into relationship and you get what you brought in. Where's the compensation for her not being able to increase her ability to work because she was the caregiver for his dad. That's not something she got paid for during relationship because they didn't think they would break up, but there's this prenup that says she doesn't get spousal or she doesn't, you know, because they both came in with decent jobs. Right. But the reality is that the husband was able to advance his career and build his business. And she wasn't because she stayed at home. She didn't stay at home, but she limited her ability to advance in his career. So she could be more available to be a caregiver for his father. Right. So sometimes you have relationships that like that, that we can't really foresee that that's going to be an issue. So I guess in those cases, what I would say is it's just, odd for when life things happen to say, oh, by the way, we need to update our prenup to sort of account for the fact that now I'm taking care of your father. Because, <laughs> you know, it's just an odd thing to say 20 years into a marriage or something, right? Yeah. Um, but but all of these are things that, I mean, spouse support and partner support to me is is the is the scariest one um, for a couple I, of reasons too, like right? That. You know, Heather, like- I don't like we, dealing with spousal support we in, don't. in prenup agreements unless yeah. it's a second marriage and they're well on their way and they have enough assets to cover themselves. I, I really, really, really discourage tough. dealing with spousal support in advance, but yep. that's but a general rule, not a specific one there. Your mileage may vary, but exactly. <laughs> but the property stuff. Yeah. I completely agree with you. I mean, mm-hmm. like that's, I mean, property to me is very, very academic, right? Spousal is where I have, uh, you know, issues. Right. Um, and then well, child I, support. I is, think, you know, I like better. your take on this, Crystal. I, I, I think, Spousal support, if you have spousal support or try to include one in a marriage contract or a prenuptial agreement, that uh, it's got to be vulnerable to attack. It has to be. I just don't see how it can't be. Because if you look at what we put in our separation agreements, uh, we include things... Uh, this this requires a little bit of background about spousal support in order to give the listeners context. But... Mm -hmm. Basically, in the Divorce Act and in Alberta, the Family Law Act has almost exactly the same wording about partner support as we do in the Divorce Act about spousal support. There's uh, factors that have to be considered by a court before they make a spousal support order, and that order has to achieve objectives that are listed in the Divorce Act. And so when we're contracting out of spousal support, when the relationship's already ended, for example, we turn our attention to we've considered these factors and in our opinion, these objectives are being met. And that's part of the solid foundation of why you're going to contract out of spousal support. Well, if the relationship hasn't ended, like those objectives include things very specific to the end of the relationship and factors that are related to the end of the relationship. If the relationship hasn't ended, how can you possibly turn your mind to those factors and achieve those objectives? There's no way you can possibly do it. So I don't know, like I haven't tested this out in court and I don't know uh, to what extent prenups have been tested in the court system in Canada. But I would think just from that alone, they would be quite vulnerable. I don't know. What is your take and experience from both of you, Heather and Crystal? Well, I've definitely dealt with prenups that say there'll be no spousal support payable no matter what. Um, and that's done. At, but as Heather said, that's typically when it's a second marriage and people are on a little bit later in life, right? When 
people are young and, you know, there's a lot of things that can happen. Um, you know, that, that, that is less common. Also, if somebody has a particular dehabilitating medical issue at the time of marriage, even if they're young, we sometimes address spousal support because it's known, That's it's right. in play, and there's often accommodations made for it, especially if it's, you know, something that is um, terminal, right? So these are things that, that but, but you're right, so much of the other issues with spouse supports and the, the, the things that need to be met do happen upon dissolution and so, or separation. Um, so, so yes, that those would be challenged, but I, I have, you know, had some where it is appropriate to deal with spousal or partner supports. Um, and for those who watch a lot of TV, it's alimony in the States. Um, so, you know, with, 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 um, dealing with it at, at the prenup stage or even at a postnup stage. Right. Okay. Um, especially like I've had a few where it comes up when somebody, somebody's business kind of takes off halfway through a relationship or a marriage. Um, people sort of want to address that because there becomes a lot of issues with income once somebody starts a business or had a business that really ends up taking off. And so sometimes that's dealt with by the spouse becoming a shareholder and taking on a certain amount of shares. But sometimes people want to revisit spousal in their prenup halfway through, even if there isn't a contemplation of separation, mm-hmm. right? They want to kind of think about that, right? Um, so, because there's a lot of things you can do with a corporation that affects your income, that really affects spousal upon separation. I mean, and child support to some extent, but really we're, we're talking about spousal here. And and that that has become a real life issue if nobody ever turned their mind to that, right? I have a few files, especially with real estates that has become, that have become quite messy, um, with that point. Um, so I, I think generally speaking, I agree with you. I think, um, prenups are fantastic. I think, um, everyone should do it. I think we're at a generation where talking about money is more comfortable. I do think a lot of people from age, I would say probably 50 and younger, feel comfortable talking about money at the onset of, um, a relationship, um, talking about finances, talking about debt, especially a lot of consumer debts. Um, people have a lot of consumer debt, especially in North America. Um, I find so compared to where I'm from, um, so that those conversations happen quite a bit. And so I do think if you're responsible and you feel, um, that it is something that it's that that you want to do. That conversation is is definitely something that should happen up front, and you know definitely see a lawyer deal with it right then and there. I can't tell you how many friends and even you know family members where they haven't needed me beyond probably just the initial stages of the separation because they had a prenup and everybody sort of had an understanding of what what, what would happen. Right. So they're definitely helpful. Um, I just, in my practice though, I actually see them less often, but that's because by the time people get to us, they're already contemplating litigation. So that might be why, um, ironically, I was, um, taught by a very prominent lawyer who is a professor at Dalhousie university family law. And he always said to us that he, um, 
I, I was sold by Rudy Thompson and he didn't get a prenup. And so he always says it's so ironic that a lot of family lawyers and people who know family law very well actually don't get prenups because the presumption is you know so much about the law, the person they're marrying assumes that they're trying to get one over on them. So they're just less inclined to bring it up. Mm. So that's the kind of the irony of it. The more you know, the more skeptical your partner is of you because you have the knowledge. So I just want to put out there, people, even if that's something that that you're worried about, you're supposed to get independent legal advice anyway. That's a requirement under the legislation that you get ILA from another lawyer. So even if your partner is a lawyer, especially a family lawyer or someone who, you know, knows the law with respect to property, um, you get ILA anyway from another lawyer. So mm-hmm. you'll be covered regardless. Your, your your spouse can't or your potential spouse can't one up you um, unless you choose a lawyer that doesn't know what they're doing. But as long as you pick somebody who knows anything about property, you'd be fine. So. Or, you know, even as a bare minimum, if you're moving in with someone or getting married, go have a consult with a lawyer and ask them. Generally speaking with the law is when, when that relationship ends. So just so you have some knowledge going in on how the law would operate, right? Just have some understanding because that's the biggest shock to folks. I think sometimes at the end of a relationship, they, they're just like shocked by how the law operates and that's a surprise so at least some knowledge going in but yeah yeah um i don't know about you heather i don't have a prenuptial agreement (laughs) um i don't plan on getting one uh i think about that though crystal i think about like should i be taking my own advice yeah but i have so many children that it makes divorce very impractical (laughs) <laughs> that's funny so i have a cohab agreement and it was very easy there was a not like as much as i say it's it's a and i recommended who my partner went to for his ila and was so that really <laughs> independent legal advice then uh, right <laughs> um i mean i would i would think that lawyer would risk their their license you know but i said look here's a list of people i know who know their stuff pick one from the list get ILA. Um, but I, we're not moving in together until we figure this out because we both have property. We both have assets. I have a corporation, you know, you have debt. I don't. <laughs> so we need to figure it out. We need to sort this out. Right. Um, and it was a very pleasant conversation. I don't know if that's cultural. I don't know, but you know, it was a very, very pleasant conversation. I think it's a lot to do with age, maturity, you know, yeah, this is his really second serious relationship. He has a child from a previous relationship. I am in the law. We're both, you know, in our thirties. So maybe that had something to do with it. Maybe if we were in our twenties, it would have been a more difficult conversation. I don't know, but I, I thought it, it went great. So for anybody out there, broach it, you know, you know, your partner better. I, I do think it's something that you should definitely try to do. If you don't particularly want to do it, or you think it's uncomfortable, maybe broach it again a year into marriage and do a post-nup, um, or then just keep your documents. And then- yeah, I, I want to talk about that for a second too, because there, there's this, I feel like there's this artificial pressure to get a prenuptial done before marriage. Um, and, you know, I've read somewhere that, you know, the closer it is to the marriage, the weaker the agreement, especially if it's like the day before, because then there's like implied pressure to enter into the agreement. 
Um, and you're not prejudicing yourself by getting married first and then having a, a, a marriage contract. It's the same thing. It's just that uh, you're already married. Yeah, you're not pressuring yourself. It's just that the other side is less inclined, right? People are, life happens and people don't really think about it, right? Um, I don't yeah. think actually that because the legislation requires you to have ILA, I don't think the fact that you do it the day before or even the day of but is an argument. I mean, I don't know. I'd have to look into the case law, to be honest with you. But I wouldn't think that argument would fly because at the end of the day, you got independent legal advice before you signed it. So I don't, I don't see it as coercion. I don't think your arguments about coercion will fly even if you did it on the day of, especially if you had it weeks in advance. Um, so, I mean, but I, I take your point that, yes, it could look like that, but because Canada has that ILA requirement, and this is, you know, Alberta specifically, but all, um, all legislation in every province, because I have checked this, in Canada has an ILA requirement in their legislation. There are some states that don't. So that's different, right? Two people could just sign without ILA. So, so I would see that argument flying probably better in that particular state. And the states has these new fault states versus fault states. So their legislation is different. But in Canada, it's all no faults, quote unquote, and it's all ILA requirements. So I, I feel like that weakens that argument, but I could see it more like if you got married in California or something and then you came to Canada, then you might be able to push that argument. I think my understanding of the trend in the case law on that is it's not necessarily like whether it's signed the day before the wedding, but the circumstances uh, of the negotiation and leading up to the agreement. So Crystal, you mentioned, you know, did you have it weeks in advance? Right. Have you been working on this for two months? But, you know, <laughs> finally all the lawyers are together at the same time on the Friday for the Saturday wedding. That's probably fine. I think if, um, you know, the disadvantaged party were to be handed a draft on Monday um, and the weddings Friday, that probably, even with ILA, that's going to be one circumstance a court might consider and look at and start being like, ooh, yeah. <laughs> was there undue pressure here, right? So I, I still think it'd have to be egregious or something. Yeah, I think it would ILA. probably have yeah. to be, I mean, it would have to be unfair to start yeah. off with, right? Yeah. Um, and not, you know, yeah, like, yeah, exactly. But I, th I think that is one of the, um, it, yeah, it's more so that that the circumstances of the negotiation and leading up to the signing. Yep. Yep. No. Crystal, so I want to go ahead. You said something great there that was another legal term. You just breezed right by, just fell out of your mouth so naturally. But I want you to talk about it a little bit more. You said some states are no, are no fault. Other states are fault. And in Canada, we're all no fault. What do you mean by no fault? Okay. So, I mean, I don't want to get into this too much because Canada, I mean, is, is pretty consistent across the board, but basically um, adultery and someone's bad behavior, for example, doesn't get you more money in your property settlements in Canada. Right. So people often come to me and they say, oh, well, he cheated or she cheated, doesn't that mean that they get nothing? No, that doesn't affect your property statement, your, your property settlement. What about support? Entitlements, right? Spouse support, no, right? So if somebody, now, that's not a blanket, no, because if someone was dissipating matrimonial property, aka I had a file once where <laughs> the guy had a, 
lady, a young lady that he met on a cruise who lived in Mexico. And I, my client found all these weird wire transfers through RIA that she'd never even heard of, but it's a common money transfer um, option. Because if you're trying to hide it, you're not going to use the typical ones, right? Like you're not going to use the typical money transfer ones that people see on TV. You're going to use kind of the odd ones that, you know, if you're from South America or Africa, you might know about. So Ria is one of those. And he was sending money consistently to Mexico and she couldn't figure out why we found all of this. So we were able to argue that he dissipated assets. And so we were able to sort of add that back into the valuation of his company. And that gave her a, a, a disproportionate amount of the property and settlement. Um, and that also sort of imputed his income for the purposes of spousal support because it was through the corporation and there was a lot going on. But it doesn't, it didn't make her any more entitled to spousal support. Right. It wasn't right. because he was had this relationship with the Mexican lady and that right. it, it was because the money was disappearing. Outside yeah, that relationship. exactly. And, and it was assets that they had, right? So he was funneling it through the company and out of the company. So it devalued his company, but she's entitled to some of those retained earnings in that company because the companies, they started that company basically together. He started when they were together. So, um, so you could, I mean, this, I could get into way more complicated. I mean, there's levels to this when it comes oh, yeah. to people moving money. I mean, we could go on and on. Um, I mean, when oh. you're in law school, your, 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 your exam questions. And people always wonder why law school exams are so weird, but your, your law school exam is like one big, long question. It's like a page and a half and you could find a thousand different issues in law in that question. And I mean, we could, I could come up with all kinds of things, but the bottom line is when it comes to the fault versus no fault, it's basically about the behavior and adultery. Whereas in the States, there are some States where, because they're fault States, if somebody cheats, you almost automatically get a disproportionate share of the property, even if you didn't have a prenup that said that, huh. right? And a no-fault state means that unless you had a prenup that said that, that behavior isn't taken into account when we're looking at spousal support or even looking at the, the distribution of property, right? But Canada is across the board. The, the, the legislation, the Divorce Act actually says that the court is not allowed to look at somebody's behavior. So if somebody beat you up during the relationship and you got a black eye and a broken jaw out of it, you still have to bring a separate civil action to get those funds back, whether if you have to do reconstructive surgery or all of that stuff, right? You have to do a separate action. You don't yeah. get more spousal support or more of your property because this person was abusive, right? Yeah, that's um, that's that's such, that's so important to know because, like, obviously, uh, family violence is not something that anybody should be taking lightly, but it's just not going to be accounted for when it comes to money splitting yep. up money and, and support. And so family violence, for sure, you can bring a civil action for assault Yep, and, and get awards that way. But you cannot bring an action for adultery anymore in Alberta. No. The only thing adultery is helpful for is if you want to fast track your divorce. Right. So if you want to use it as a grounds to get your divorce faster than one year, then you can check off adultery as, as one of one of the one and of it's the not reasons. even that helpful if the other person is upset not, about that at all. Yeah. They'll be like, no, yeah, I'm filing a statement of defense. And guess what? Then it's gonna take longer than a year. Yeah. yeah. So then you, then just... you have to prove it, right? But I yeah. mean, maybe, maybe you have that smoking gun videotape that I told you to take <laughs> of the adultery <laughs> happening sure. in your in your I'm bedroom, just, right? I'm just feeling myself coming home. Yeah. My bedroom and well, maybe maybe you just have like a vivid system or what fluent or any of these systems in your home and you happen to have a camera on your bed or maybe you have a nanny cam that has it right in which case you you tell your ex 
either disclose this camera of you having sex with somebody else or you just agree to it. Most people are just going to agree to it, right? Because all it does is fast track the divorce. It doesn't give you any more money. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I've, so I've that, had that conversation so regularly that I feel like it was useful to kind of explore that a little bit because, yeah. it, you know, it, it often comes up and you understand why, right? Because yeah. someone who's been wronged that way, like that's very, it's very, very hurtful. And it feels like there should be some kind of, they should have some kind of benefit. Yeah. And it, and it is the case in some States, right? And remember people watch a lot of these reality TV shows and, and a lot of shows. I mean, I think there's a show called, it's an American show. I think it's called family law and it's a family that practices family law, uh, <laughs> a father and a daughter, and they have a law firm or whatever. And I think they're in a state that's a fault state. So that stuff does come up. So people see these things and it, it's a very legitimate looking show. I mean, most of this stuff looks accurate to me. Right. So um, I mean, it's still dramatized. It's like the good wife and all of these shows. Yeah, it's really yeah. dramatized, but, but the people sound like they know what they're talking about. Right. So yeah. people come to your office and they're like, well, I saw her. First of all, the first red flag for me is when people say alimony <laughs> and I'm like, okay, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's leave the TV alone and let's start afresh. Cause they come in here with like calculations. Right. And I love a good calculation. I love a good budget and a breakdown <laughs> of what you need, but not why you think you need it. Right. So, um, yeah, so that's all I'd say. So I want to move really quick into custody stuff just because I'm conscious of the time. And I do think there's some good don'ts that I want people to pay attention to that people don't really think about. So for example, yes, marijuana is legal partake if you want, don't be high <laughs> during your divorce. Avoid that as much as possible. It is legal, but even when alcohol has always been legal, or at least I don't know when alcohol went after prohibition or whatever, but right. alcohol has been legal for a long time and you still can't be drunk while you have your kid. So even though marijuana is legal, don't take that edible before that kid comes over, right? Don't do these things. Don't um, hotbox the car on the way back. Don't hotbox the car. And people are smart enough not to actually smoke, but it's the edibles I'm having an issue with. Um, I'm like, that edible kicks in and lasts for a long time. Your kid may not notice it, but the other side is going to notice it when they come to pick up your kid. If you're way too giggly or way too friendly, they're going to pick up on that. And they're going to video record you because I just told them okay. surreptitious videos recording can be used. So don't, don't do it. Um, you know, yeah. marijuana stuff. I just came from a seminar, a criminal seminar on um, impaired and the difficulty police are having with proving impaired when it's marijuana impaired. And uh, that was helpful from a sort of criminal context in terms of being charged, but the family threshold is so much lower. So if you come across acting weird, people are going to assume, especially if you're somebody who always smoked or whatever, that it's because you're high, right? And it doesn't have to be high on marijuana. It could be overdosing on your prescription medication, right? All of these things are relevant in family law, right? right. So you have to you know, you have to be conscious of that. Don't take, you know, two Percocet before your kid comes or what's the other one for nerves? Um, don't, don't, if you need it, you really need it. And it, you have a prescription for it. I say, try to take it a few hours before, maybe if you can manage, but just when you're in litigation, 
you you're under a microscope. Almost everything in your life becomes relevant as opposed to criminal law where the incident is relevant. The other things you do in your life is only relevant if you're on release conditions and it's somehow relevant to those release conditions. But if you're not the nicest person at your job or to your neighbor or whatever, while you're on a, on a, in a criminal matter, that's not relevant to your case, Uh but in family, it could be, if you're outside cursing your neighbor out, and the kids upstairs watching through the window, the other, and some the neighbor tells your ex, that might be relevant in your family matter. And yeah. that might just be a life thing, mm-hmm. right? So I just, just keep that stuff in mind. Same thing with going out to bars and clubs. Of course, go out, have a good time, you know, but don't, I have actually used Instagram stories. Like I literally had my clients screenshot this entire story because it's in time slots. And then we printed it on paper to add it as an exhibit because moving the story into a video and then trying to get a fire to get that video in was difficult. So we, we timestamped the story in 10 second intervals and then we put it on paper. So we had like 20 sort of 10 second intervals on. So it's kind of like a flip book. Like you could see this person. Frames, getting, yeah. You got yeah, the frames. Frame. So you can see this person getting drunker and drunker on the night that they had their kid. And then said they were home, but really they left the kid with the mom. They went out, they brought home a new girl and it's in the girl's Instagram story, not even his Instagram story. So we find her Instagram, we take it from her story and it ends up in an affidavit. So like, I know it sounds unfair and people have lives to live, but be conscious when you're in litigation that a lot of the lawyers were also very tech savvy. And if not, we have assistants that are tech savvy. We're going to find it if it's there, right? So be conscious of like just your lifestyle during, and, you know. And look, just just as a public service announcement, I just want you to think very, very carefully about list all the wonderful, amazing things that have happened late at night uh, when people are drunk. And then compare that with the number of crimes that are committed late at night when people are drunk. Yeah. And maybe do a cost benefit analysis of whether or not you want to be in those situations drunk late at night. Yeah. Because if you, if, if you eliminated all of the uh, late night drunk crimes, there'd be a, there's just not very many other crimes. Yeah. I would be a little bit facetious here, but some of these things are just life things, like something very simple, like don't risk driving without a license. That seems really simple. Maybe you just took a while to renew your license or whatever. And in regular day-to-day life, that's not a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. Even if you get pulled over, sure, you pay a fine. But in family, oh, you were driving your kid around and you had no license. That could be relevant, right? It's not going to make or break your case, but it all goes towards your character. Right. It, right? it adds up, right? It's, it's a pebble. Up. A pebble in the pile, right? That's right. Yeah. And you're at that nightclub and you said you weren't. And... Yep. Yeah, right. Any dissipated assets. Yep, you're a bad guy. Or right. And that one time you took a gummy and it didn't wear off in time for you to pick up your kid. And and uh, and you yelled at the neighbor, right? Yeah. So yeah. um all of that, then all of a sudden you have six things that just makes you look like an irresponsible parent, right? And there's like there's low-hanging fruit. This is with any anything yep. like that. When you're looking at a challenge that you're facing, it's like there's insurmountable things. There's things that you can't change about yourself. But then there's like little, really, really simple things that you can change. Like, oh, don't take the edible while you have your child. Yeah. Like you can, if you never take an edible, like right from like before, so that you're not, you're not going to be on it, under the influence from pickup to drop off. Yeah. Yep. You can do that. Like that is something that's simple within your power. There may be other things you can't control, like 
your temper may be more difficult for you to control. It may cause you some challenges, but you can at least avoid taking drugs. Yep. And so I want to get into something that actually is a live issue because there's been changes to the Divorce Act, right, which has instructed the court to take into account coercive and controlling behavior when Mm -hmm. looking at family violence, right? Mm -hmm. And I had a case that basically turned on my clients, our family wizard messages. Just the way they were. Tell tell them. Tell our listeners what Our Family Wizard is. So Our Family Wizard is this, and I'm not advocating for it. There's a few other ones. There's the co-parenting app. There's other ones. But in this particular case, it was Our Family Wizard. And it's an application that parents can use to co-parent, right, and communicate during um, post-separation and, and, you know, forever if they really want, right? And what the app is... And as I said, this is not the only app out there. This is an American app that costs about 100 US a year, but there's other ones. There's a Canadian one called Co-Parenter. Um, there's a few other ones. Um, and what it does is it basically tracks, you know, all of your messages back and forth. So you don't have some in text, some in email, some in all over the place. And it even gives you recommendations like, now the, the first form of it didn't do that, but now there's a there's a um, option to kind of take recommendations for wording, right? So they say hmm, maybe rephrase this way, right? It kind of helps. It's not perfect, but it kind maybe of take the douchiness out of this. Sentence, yeah, maybe right? like yeah. maybe it's, I think it like flags like curse words or whatever, but it, it can't flag tone, right? And that's the problem. And so in my file, it was more about. Tone. It was one of those where I had a particularly sophisticated client who should probably go to law school because they're really good at cross-examining their spouse. And so they would cross-examine in the messages. So in your affidavit, you said this, but now you're messaging me saying this, which is it, right? And, and in messages about, hey, are you going to meet me at swimming? There is literally cross-examination about something else that's completely unrelated, right? And so do recognize that these documents can be used in court and do stick to whatever it is that you're supposed to be talking about and don't use it as an opportunity to badger your spouse because depending on what justice you get, you can have a file that literally, a parenting file that turns on this issue of coercive control. And sometimes badgering could be seen as that if it's bad enough, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that sounds really like a stretch, but it, it really isn't if it's bad enough, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so do seek out assistance from a professional if you feel like you can't help yourself, if you mm-hmm. feel like you're being railroaded post-separation because you know, the mom is lying in every single affidavit and you, you're taking forever to get to trial or whatever it is, do seek out assistance from a professional, whether it's a parenting coach or whether it's a psychologist or even just a therapist or a counselor, right? Do do that because that will definitely, and not just for litigation purposes, but it also helps because I had an expert that I actually brought in from Calgary on a tri- in a trial and he's originally from California and he was around during the riots and stuff in California. And so he's written like a lot of, um, articles and published document published um, journal articles on PTSD mm-hmm. and he has um he sort of parallels regular PTSD with something called post litigation syndrome and saying that there are people who 
may have had tendencies in a relationship, but because they have this post-litigation syndrome, AKA things dragging on, multiple court applications, multiple affidavits, all of a sudden family dynamic changing, it's not a diagnosable condition, but he says it's similar to like PTSD, hmm. right? And so people are not themselves. So we're going to use how you spoke to your ex and what you did in your matter, but that isn't your typical reaction or the typical person that you are. That's right. part of your post-litigation stress, right? So he actually spoke about that at one of my trials and it was quite interesting. I think the judge was quite interested to hear it because mm. it is a trauma, right? A mm. breakdown of a relationship is like a, like a death sometimes. And some people take it differently and it is a, it is trauma. Litigation is trauma, right? Mm -hmm. Going through the court system is trauma. Unfortunately, family law is dealt with as an adversarial process a lot of the time and yeah. that probably isn't the best way of dealing with it but that's what we have and there are a lot of delays i mean the pandemic some people had trials booked for during the pandemic and then had to wait a year and a half two years after you could imagine how it was ramped up just by virtue of not having access to the court process when their right. matter was already a high conflict matter right and they'd already waited how long and they'd already waited how point. long to get yeah. to their first trial and they they already had a sort of practice set up where they couldn't communicate and they constantly went to made court applications for everything. And that isn't healthy, but that's what was happening. And then all of a sudden they couldn't get into court for a year and a half or whatever, or they couldn't get their trial. Yeah. So these are things that, that, that do happen. And so I guess my advice for that is not even if you're particularly struggling, if let's number one, normalize counseling and therapy. Yes. First Hallelujah. Of all, yes. And <laughs> secondly, let's normalize the fact that breakups are not, people aren't meant to just get over a breakup. Everybody says, I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people say, just get over it, just get past it, move on. There's plenty of fish to see, blah, blah, blah. Let's normalize the fact that it's tough. And so, especially when there's children, especially when there's property, especially when your finances are tied up, some people's life is, their entire life is tied up financially with this person and so at 50 years old they may have to be starting over let's normalize that these things are tough and it's a form of trauma and if you need to see somebody that's okay i encourage it because the the repercussion of not doing it and acting out in writing or over the phone where i've already told you you're allowed to record means that it negatively affects your case when that may not be you that may not be you in your in your regular state it's you in a traumatic heightened state and but that's what the court is seeing the court is seeing that you're this person and that may not be the person that you are right so yeah. seek seek help let's normalize that your lawyer is not your counselor you're going to be paying your lawyer whatever their rate is to do something that they're not professionally skilled in so mm -hmm. they're not meant to they're meant to walk you through the legal process they're not meant to necessarily calm you down at every single stage we do do that because we want to put out the fire so that we're not dragged into court next week, but we're not trained to do that. Yeah. So seek out some kind of counseling or assistance while you're seeing your lawyer. You could even just do an online counselor, anything, you know, where, and if you have really supported family, maybe you don't even need professional, maybe you just need people to vent to, but like, let's normalize not having to get over things right away. Yeah. And this, and accepting that there's no stigma in separation, mm -hmm. right? Let's get rid of that stigma around mm -hmm. divorce and separation, right? Yeah. Because I don't want to encourage it, but if it happens, let's, let's 
get away from this idea that you just have to get over it or that you deal with it yourself. Right. Um, Hold on a sec. All right. I have removed the stigma and those things are now normalized. Okay. <laughs> Hit enter. Press enter. <laughs> uh, you know, Crystal, to that point too, I think one thing that, I mean, this can probably come with her- therapy, but like just to sort of think about the long game as well, because it, absent some pretty severe, um, you know, end circumstances, it's, it's really unusual for one person to be granted primary care, absolutely primary care of a child where the other parent isn't going to have some involvement in their life. So even if you're trying to make your spouse insane or seem insane or trigger them and have them acting like a crazy person when the kiddo's with them, if you're successful in that, you're probably still not going to be successful in banning that person from that child's life. And ultimately, you're making your child loves that person, right? So, you know, maybe even try and think of the long game and look at it through your child's eyes and think, is this how I want my kid to see the other parent when they're there? Is that the experience I want to be having? And give yourself some grace, give them some grace and a little bit of forgiveness if you can too. Um, Take a deep breath before you send a text message or pick up your phone or whatever it is, right? But I think sometimes that behavior ends up being at cross purposes too, right? If you're goading someone or, or, you know, just trying to make them seem, um, unfit, I guess, or, or crazy or something. I don't know. I'm a firm believer too, that doing the right thing in the end always works out. Now it might take a long time to get there. It might not get there until after you die, but doing the right thing, I think will always have the right result in the end. And so that, that extends to like high road, taking the high road uh, wherever possible, you know? And so not, not engaging because it's it's totally normal for there to be hurt feelings and people to do things just to hurt each other and at some point you're going to become tired of it and you're going to want to stop and it's okay to take the high road and to not engage in that in that at all and i think in the end that that's the that's the philosophy that always wins the day in the end in the words of Michelle Obama, when they go low, you go high. So, <laughs> so I think that's, right. that's what you need to try to do unless, and this takes me to another point, unless your intention is to alienate those children. And if that's the case, then you're a terrible parent and you need to seek other help outside of this, yeah. this matter. If yeah. you think that it's okay to alienate your kid from a parent for your own strategic litigation needs, that is going to come back to haunt you because that child is going to blame you for that relationship breakdown when they turn 16, 17, 18, and they figure it out, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Do not... That's what I mean. It always comes out. Like you, you, you can't yeah. really hide it. For You can't get away with anything. Not really. Yeah. It's gonna... Even if it's when that child is an adult and then they're gonna keep their children from you as a grandmother because they figured out what you did to them and you because yeah. you alienated them from there. Yeah. their parents. So you might win your, your custody matter because you have a 14 year old who says, I, I don't ever want to see my dad. And you feel like you've won, but I'm telling you, my experience has been when that child goes on to college or whatever and starts to put things together, unless the person was particularly problematic, you know, they were 
whatever, right? They were abusive. Yeah, but that's not really alienation. We're not talking, that's not alienation. That's, yeah. Then you're talking about, you know, making sure the child's best interest is looked out. Yeah, yeah. Unless there's, there's real safety concerns there. And, and that is, an, I mean, that's kind of an objective test. But, but if, if you're alienating literally just to win your custody matter, for whatever reason, it's for the child support or it's because you're bitter or you're upset or you really do believe that the other person is incompetent and you're the better, you're the only person that could parent this child. Whatever it is, absent, you know, proof of safety concerns, I would say, I'll just make that general, that is going to come back to haunt you. It may not be with your child, but it's going to be with your grandchildren or whoever comes after that. Yeah. Um, or the court's going to figure it out and they're going to completely switch custody because they have the power to do that. Yeah. And it, if, it happens. It happens. If they figure mm -hmm. out that you've been trying to brainwash that child, they're mm -hmm. going to completely flip custody and they're going to keep that child with you for a little while to kind of deprogram that child. So and you're going to one day you might all of a sudden realize, oh, I've done this terrible thing. And that might be, you know, when you're paying for it, is when now you have to live with the fact that you've done something very unethical that has wrecked people's lives. Yeah. So, so. how do you know if you're alienating? I was just about to say to that point, if you're, oh, yeah. if you're traumatized, you just want the best. Yeah. Like, what are the kinds of things you want to be watching out for, even in your own behavior then that are like, Ooh, okay. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. So one of the big things and the most obvious ones is having like conversations about the other parents around the child, right? You might be talking to your girlfriend on the phone, while the child's in the car and you have the you have your girlfriend on your cell phone or on speaking in the car for example or even if you're on your headset and you're you're ranting right you're allowed to do that remember we encourage counseling or having support people just don't do it when your kid's in earshot right because that child's picking up all that information and kids are really bright even if you don't say the name right a lot of parents think if they spell things out or if they use aliases kids can't put it together these kids know exactly what you're talking about Please. right mm -hmm. so and they're listening they might be playing on their nintendo switch or whatever but they're listening to your conversation kids love to listen to adult conversations so when i was growing up actually um i remember my parents would speak patois which is a different kind of broken French and Trinidad so that we wouldn't overhear what they were talking about because it, children it's are not broken. It Patois is it's either a, a pigeon or it's a full language. Well it's actually like French but it yeah. is like non-proper French in Trinidad. In it's, Jamaica, it's a little bit different, it's but a it, creole, it is, it's a Creole, which it's is a Creole a, kind of French language. Yes. Don't devalue <laughs> the language. Okay, continue. So, so they would walk. they would do that so that we can't overhear adult conversations. And there's a lot of things that my parents would have discussed, probably that were heated arguments between the two of them that I didn't learn until I was already in my twenties like about finances and property and, you know, family members that I didn't learn until I was already like my late twenties, early thirties. And I, I'm not saying you have to be that careful, like where you're speaking a whole other language, but like, that's the point I'm making. My parents were very conscious that my sister and I never knew as children, things that we should not be exposed to. We were supposed to focus on school and sports and friends and family and whatever right so i think it's important that's that's something i really value now as an adult looking back especially in the work that i do because a lot of parents parentify their children quite a bit and for a lot of parents they treat their children like equals and they are not kids don't have the mental capacity or maturity to deal with the information that you're giving them because they're not your friend 
They're not your age. They're not at your maturity level. They're kids, right? So let them be kids. So don't, for example, I had a file the other day. I'm child's counsel on this file. My client told me, who is the child, well, dad never paid child support, so mom can keep the house. Why are you 11 years old and you know that? Right. So, and it's not true because <laughs> he didn't pay child support. So, um, so they couldn't keep the house because they couldn't afford it and it had to be put up for sale. It had nothing to do with the support being paid. It was a million dollar house that neither of them could keep on their own. Right. So that's the, and so I'm not now going to explain this to this kid because I have the court orders, I have the financials, but I'm not going to be like, see right here, here's where your mom got, you know, two grand a month. Mm-hmm. I'm not having that conversation with this child, but this is now embedded in this kid, right? Mm. And so when I go to court and I speak, on behalf of this child, I have to say, well, this is what he's saying he wants, but it's based on his understanding, which is this, which is actually wrong. So while I can take an instructional approach, it's also not in his best interest because he's he's been alienated. He's working with wrong information, yeah. right? And so he thinks his dad's this horrible person that just left them to live in squalor, right? So all of this is, all the nuances of practicing family law. If you practice, you, sometimes you represent parents, sometimes you represent kids, sometimes you do a lot of things. And, and you have to really look at, you know, the nuances and the dynamics in the family and parents have that within their control. You can control what those family dynamics look like post-separation while managing your own trauma, right? And one of the easiest ways to do that is just not have those conversations around your kid. Don't have those, you know, property conversations or custody conversations or child support conversations at the exchange. Or patois. Yeah, or <laughs> or speak a different language. If you if you already speak a different language and your kid doesn't understand it, hey, that's the easiest way to do it. Um, but try to keep your body language under control. So um, no, but that's you know don't put you know the child support check in the kid's backpack. You know, <laughs> don't do these little things that you think might be easier, but that's not you know it's not appropriate. If you don't want a handy person the, the money because you feel it's you know you're resentful or it's going to start an argument or whatever it is, then go through MEP, which is the maintenance enforcement program. If you're going right? to pay by e-transfer, you need to realize that the person you're paying can see who, how you've chosen to name. Yes, that's free. <laughs> And yes. so keeping them like the C word, for example. Yes, uh, or the B word. Not, not going to be great. So don't do that. Yes, don't do those things. All of those passive aggressive sort of things, they're really easy not to do. They're really easy to do subconsciously if you're really, really mad, but you need to be conscious of it. So again, nobody's perfect. We get that sometimes, you know, you might have react- a reaction or you might snap, but just be self-aware and be conscious keep it in mind that you are going through something that's traumatic as well, right? So if you keep in mind that we've normalized trauma, we've normalized counseling. Which we've done already today. Which we've done, yes. Mm-hmm. Then then it's okay to have like a slip, but be conscious of it because, you know, we know the context, right? Um, yeah, so what else? I think I had... I have a question, uh, Crystal, and I want to pick your brain on that. What if you do make a mistake? Is it okay to write to the other person and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Yeah, never never apologize, Heather. Never. (laughs) Or is that just going to make me look weak at court and make me lose my case if I said, you know, I lost my crap there last week and I'm sorry? 
So one, this is one of the big differences between criminal law and family law. In family law, I tell my clients, always fall on your sword. In criminal law, I tell my clients, admit nothing, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> so I can have the same client for a family matter or a criminal matter. <laughs> and I give them different advice depending on what court we're going to and which one is heard first. So for example, I had one where the dad was um, charged with assault on the child in the family matter. And so the criminal matter was being heard first because often family will sit and wait for the criminal matter to be resolved. Mm -hmm. So of course I said in your text messages, if she brings up this incident, just don't respond to it. Answer everything else except the incident, right? Don't respond to it. Don't acknowledge it because you have to maintain silence for criminal matters, right? And then once that gets resolved, then in the family matter, sure, if you yell at the kid and the kid comes back and tell the mom, sure, you can say, you know, I was having a particularly rough day. I'm really sorry. I'm going to meet with our counselor and our son to kind of just go over how I can do better, right? So if it's just a family matter, depending on what it is, my advice to you is going to be like, sure, fall on your sword. But if it's significant, and I think there could be a criminal charge that comes out of it, I might, be give, I might give you different advice. Right. Um, and if you already have a pending criminal charge, I'll give you different advice. Because this is the thing. It's not that I feel that people in family matters who do things should get away with it on the criminal side. It's just that the reality is that as criminal defense lawyers, we have a very specific rule. And we have to maintain that rule for our clients, right? And sometimes the outcome of certain types of convictions and family matters actually ends up worse for the family. There's other ways to actually deal with things like that that's better than going to the criminal justice system. And I truly do believe that depending on the circumstances of what happened and how it happened and when it happened and how often it happened, that parent having a criminal conviction is actually worse off for the family unit as a whole, right? That's not my call to make, though, because I'm not a crown prosecutor or a judge. My job as your criminal lawyer and also your family lawyer is to make sure that when I wear each hat, I'm doing the best job that I can, right? So when I'm acting for you in a criminal matter, I'm not considering the best interests of the child. I'm considering you as my clients and can this be proven beyond a reasonable right. doubt, right? When I'm acting in the family matter, I'm still acting as, you know, on your instructions, but also in the back of my mind, I have to be conscious that the court's guidance is the best interest of the child. So when we're talking strategy and stuff like that in litigation, I have to keep that in mind that the court is going to want to know what's in the best interest of the child. So from that perspective, the court reading your messages and seeing your behavior, falling on your sword when you make a mistake is great. That is something you absolutely do not do if you have a pending criminal matter while in family law. Yeah. yeah. So it all depends on your circumstances. It depends on timing. So that's why if you have a criminal matter while you're going through a divorce, I advise you to either hire a family lawyer that also does criminal or if you have a criminal lawyer and a separate family lawyer, which is completely appropriate as well, make sure those two hands are clapping, right? Uh -huh. Tell your family uh -huh. lawyer you have a pending criminal matter and tell them the name of your lawyer because most defense lawyers are happy to pick up the phone and have a conversation with. I've actually had prosecutors pick up the phone and call me as family counsel. I'm not even on for the criminal matter. I've had them at the stage where they're deciding whether or not to lay a charge and they call the family lawyer to find out the context. And after they hear it, they've said, you know what, we're not going to pursue a criminal charge at this time. Wow. This is appropriately being dealt with in the family matter, right? Because I don't know if you guys know this, but back in 2000 and 
I want to say either six or seven, there was a push Canada-wide for Crown prosecutors to take a hard line with domestic violence in criminal, criminal domestic violence matters, right? So there was a time where if you were defense counsel and you were going to, to um, hearings, right? So, you know, the initial hearing where you're entering a plea, you would negotiate just a peace bond and they were giving those things out like candy. But then there was a kind of national wide push um, for domestic violence situations to be dealt with more strictly. So they stopped just kind of giving out these one-year peace bonds. They really started to prosecute what I would call simple assaults in a family matter. And they would not allow people to get um, house arrest type of sentences if you were convicted of a domestic violence crime, because then you'd be back in the home with your victim, right? So there was a real shift in how that was dealt with in the criminal context. And so, of course, that that trickled down to family because now there was a real shift in people coming to the table in a collaborative way because of how the Crown was treating the domestic violence piece, right? Um, so that dynamic was quite interesting. Um, and it still is because that, that is still the case because people are less inclined to come to the table um, in a collaborative way if they know there's pending criminal charges and vice versa for the victim because you're not going to force a victim to sit through a mediation or some kind of collaborative process with their abuser, right? So all of that to say, my, my, my advice is very different. And if, you're, if you find yourself in that situation, um, you need to make sure that your criminal lawyer knows your family lawyer and your family lawyer knows your criminal lawyer. And if no charges have been laid yet, but the police are involved or children's services is involved, um, make sure the cop or the crown prosecutor, you could do it, you know, through your parole officer or whoever, um, or your, cause you get assigned to someone when you have release conditions and stuff, let them know that you have a family matter pending and that you have a family lawyer, because I have had, Crown prosecutors actually call me up as a family lawyer and want to know what the context of the situation is, especially if it's a one-off, right? Especially if it's a one-off situation where, you know, somebody, and, and I'm not trying to minimize domestic violence in any way. I'm just saying sometimes you have these circumstances where it really is out of character, but unlike who's that one where the, the father ran over his daughter, he just got convicted. Um, not, not things like that. Things like that is you see things like that happen when everybody ignores signs of domestic violence in the home. Do not ever do that. Make sure you report it. And if there's criminal charges that have to be dealt with, let it be dealt with. Don't hide it because you think, oh, it's just because he was angry with mom. No, because then you're going to end up with a situation where you have, I mean, some people are that lady who drowned her kids. Like these things happen, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to, there's a balance, right? Um, just make sure the two hands are clapping and the different agencies are clapping because criminal lawyers don't know what's happening in a family court but family lawyers are a little bit more attuned as to what might be happening in the criminal court, right? Yeah. But criminal lawyers don't come across to your family hearing or order the transcripts to hear what's going on. That's just not something, yeah. the crowns don't do it, the defense lawyers don't do it. So you, your family, if you tell your family lawyer, whether you're the victim or the accused, that there's a criminal matter pending, your family lawyer could get a hold of that information. We can actually, because hearings are public. I don't know if people know this, but hearings are public, unless for some reason the judge closes the courtroom. But for the most part, they are public hearings. So your family lawyer can actually go and sit through the accused criminal trial. 
if they want, mm. right? And actually hear what they had to say or what they testified to. And then you could use that in your family proceeding, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're the victim, it's very helpful that any information you get from victim services, you share it with your lawyer. And if you're already accused, you want to make sure your lawyer knows what your spouse looks like, because if they're in the courtroom, you might want to ask for that person to have to leave or whatever, like your lawyer will know what to do. Mm -hmm. So all of that to say, um, my advice would be different depending mm -hmm. on who I'm representing and what stage the matter is in. Mm -hmm. You bring up some really interesting points there too, because I think when criminal matters are involved, I think you're right, that communication piece between all the lawyers and the two different systems are important because there's tangential effects that can be really difficult for the family as a whole, whether you're sitting in, you know, on the side of the table of the accused um, uh, or the victim, um, if they can't, if the accused can't, they've been the bread earner and they can't work anymore because of some reason or because they're being detained or because they're facing a, a sentence of some kind. If they can't communicate with the victim anymore um, about family, about house matters, about paying the bills, about like there's lots of little detail stuff that becomes very, very challenging. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, that, that they should have open communication and that you should you know, never, ever ignore your release conditions. But that conversation between, like you said, the two, the, the two hands are clapping is really important so that all of those practical bits that are important for a family to continue to function, um, um, kind of are able to happen in some way as well. Yep. And if you're an immigrant, whether you're a naturalized Canadian or non-Canadian, PR, work permit, visa, whatever, if you're not born in Canada, tell your lawyer. Because if you have an immigration issue that your lawyer maybe may not understand, they can reach out to a lawyer that does have that background for you. I mean, I have a lot of friends who pick up the phone and say, hey, Crystal, this person's on a work permit, but your wife is on that work permit, but now they're being charged. And I'll be like, whoa, you have a problem, right? Because you do have a problem. Um, so make sure and reach out, let your lawyer know, don't wait till, oh, and by the way, like my PR is about to expire while this person is in jail and I have you know, they're not working and the only reason we were here was for their job. And so there's a potential that whatever will expire or whatever it is, right? And you don't want to, as a family lawyer who doesn't practice in that area, your focus is going to be on family law and strategy around family law. Sometimes when you have a criminal matter and an immigration matter that affects family law, your strategy is not going to be family law focused. It might be you, and this is unfortunate, and this really does happen to a lot of marginalized people who come as refugees or under work permits of their spouses. But sometimes people have to take a hit on the family law side to maintain their immigration status, mm -hmm. right? And it is, the system is not perfect, but sometimes, at least for a while, that's how it has to be, right? Which is really unfortunate. Otherwise, you end up with these marginalized people who are in worse off situations mm -hmm. on the immigration side because they can't work and then they've lost their housing and a lot of stuff has now trickled down and happened to them just because of a one-off incident in their family matter, right? And they, because their lawyer is not conscious of it, they're going hard on their family matter while they're, you know, making their clients in, worse off just in their day-to-day -day lives, right? So you really need to make sure 
you reach out as I, if you're a family lawyer, definitely still take the file, take on the clients, but know your limitations and reach out to someone who practices immigration. And it doesn't even have to be a lawyer. You could reach out to immigration consultants because these consultants, that's all they do. All they do is immigration. So they're just as good as immigration lawyers, really, sometimes depending on what it is. But in a lot of things, they're just as knowledgeable and they know because that is literally all they do is immigration. So they're not lawyers, but they, they know. And I feel like immigration is a kind of unique area where you have, people who aren't lawyers who are almost as knowledgeable as a lawyer in that particular field, right? Um, I mean, I have met some immigration consultants where by the time the matter gets to me, all I'm doing is reviewing it and signing off. The documentation and everything has been done so well that I don't need to change anything, right? So um, so just keep those things in mind. That's I practice in those three areas because I... Number one, I'm an immigrant myself, so immigration has always been important to me. Um, and number two, I practiced primarily criminal before I did family. So I find those two areas do intersect family, um, probably more so if I lived in like Vancouver or Toronto, but I have seen it here. Um, I've had a few files here where it's been an issue. Not a lot, though. I would say maybe 15% of my files, um, maybe less, maybe even 10%. Um, but if you you know, are here in this podcast and you live in a bigger city, it might be actually more of a realistic um, issue for uh -huh. you. So, yeah, um, yeah, I think that's kind of it that I have in terms of notes. Um, well, you have uh, given us a fantastic feast of knowledge, a veritable yeah. feast of knowledge, and provided some great don'ts and some great do's. So... You know, I just, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your, your experiences with us and your thoughts. Um, Heather, did you have anything that she didn't cover? No, I just want to thank you for coming and for your, uh, unique perspective on, on all of, um, just on all of this stuff. Yeah. And, uh, I Oh, I do have one more do actually. Just yes. Okay. Real quick. It's mm -hmm. for the person who, cause we've been focusing so much on the, person who's a victim or the person who's left with the home, left the home. I just want to have one do for the person who wasn't the primary caregiver and kind of got sprung on with all of, um, you know, someone leaving with your children, et cetera, whether you're the husband or the wife, a big don't is don't lash out at the other person. Like be very calm in how you, I mean, you probably want to make sure they're still in the province or they're still in the city and they haven't absconded with the kids or anything like that. So you're probably in a panic state because you come home one day and your kids are you're gone. And if you're lucky, there's like a note on the table or something. Um, so don't lash out because that's actually relevant, you know, in terms of speaking to the court does have some understanding for people who are, who are blindsided like that. But if you go over and above and like you start stalking the person or following them home or, you know, trying to, call all of their friends and family and bar talk them or threaten to have them charged with child abduction and mm -hmm. those types of things. Don't do that. Don't lash out. I know it's hard because it's your kids and you come home and your kids are gone, but just calmly like reach out to family or reach out to the person first and be like, Hey, I noticed you left. Like, where are you? Where are my kids or whatever? Where are kids? Sorry. Don't say my, where are kids? The kids. Yeah. yeah so, or, or, or use their names. Where's John and Jane or whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. So try to be as calm and neutral as possible. I know it's tough, mm -hmm. but like, if you feel like you can't do it, maybe call some family first, let them sort of talk you down and then message. Um, so that's, that's one. Don't do that. Do if you are a parent who really wasn't the primary parent and you were never really involved, 
do get involved, <laughs> right? Like, because you do have a lot of time typically between separation and when your matter ultimately gets resolved. So that gives you some time to start engaging with the school, to start going to all these practices, to start engaging more with your kid. All of that stuff is relevant and all of that stuff is helpful because a lot of the time the courts, they look at, by the time it gets to court, they look at What's the situation now? They do look at the history, but most of the time, the most relevant information is what it's been now. So if you need to change your work schedule, if you have a flexible job or whatever it is, start engaging more because that actually is going to help you. Even if you don't end up with shared parenting or whatever it is you're really looking for, at least it will help you with how often and how much you get to see your kids. Because all of that stuff is definitely helpful. And it may sound like too little too late and it may look like you're, you know, doing it at the 11th hour just for court. But I'll tell you, judges really, they do want to give you the benefit of the doubt and they do want to defer to the fact that you're probably a good dad or mom who just wasn't traditionally the primary parent because they didn't have to be because they were the breadwinner or they just, if somebody else was doing it, if somebody else always did the cooking and is a better cook, you just didn't do it. That doesn't mean you're not able to do it. That doesn't mean you're you're not interested in doing it. It just means you didn't have to because you were together and one person took on that role more, right? So do start doing those things. Don't be like, oh, well, it's, it's the mom or, oh, well, you know, I always, you know, traveled a lot and dad always did everything with his, with his family or whatever. So now I'm, I'm, I'm going to be hooped. Not necessarily. You have time. I have never seen a family family matter get completely resolved in less than six months. A right? contested family matter? Yeah, contested, no yeah way. from beginning yeah. to end. Never. Yeah. In any jurisdiction I've worked. So you have at least six months to like get in there and try to be the best parent you can be. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, we've had this conversation before or touched on in any way also that like parenting is a bundle of rights and responsibilities, right? And often people are focused on the rights part. Like, right. you know, I want the kids for the weekend, uh, the fun things, but get involved with some of the responsibilities side of things as well. Right. And that's probably going to go a long way with the other parents, but I mean, potentially with your case overall, right. If you're stepping up and going to dental appointments, I don't know if that's anybody's idea of a good time, but it's part of the responsibilities that comes with being a parent. And if you're showing you're involved in those things, um, I think that goes a long way too. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's it. That's the last thing I thought of. Okay. okay. Finish now. Awesome. I love <laughs> it. You, you had much more to say than Dustin. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, if we're going to compare partners. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dustin's great though. Dustin's probably the most laid back family lawyer, but one of the most knowledgeable family lawyers that you will ever find. His personality is perfect for family law. He does not get worked up. I always say Dustin and I are like, similar person if I was a white man from Canada like (laughs) we have like similar personalities in that way but so knowledgeable I don't know if he got into any of his wills and estate stuff or any of that stuff but Dustin is such a resource and I actually I'm surprised he hasn't put his name in to be a provincial court judge but I mean we'll see you could just do it for him little surprise um yeah maybe I might I might, you know, he, he is, he is, his temperament is perfect for family law. And I think you, you need that. You have to have a lot of patience and you have to not be scandalized easily. Right. Like I came from a criminal background. I've seen the worst videos and pictures you could think of. I mean, there was one point in my criminal practice where all I did was sexual assault and most of it was incest. Right. So by the time I started practicing family, I was like, (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, there's a hole in the wall. Well, you know, I actually had to deprogram myself to be a little bit more empathetic mm-hmm. because I think people would come to me with stories and I would be like, you know, because I've seen so much, right? Mm-hmm. And on the criminal side, especially I when I worked in Nova Scotia, along the French show there, um, there was just a lot of incestuous situations and there was literally a point i think they called me the queen of sexual assault for like a year and a half that's all the trials i ran i ran Mm -hmm. sexual assault after sexual assault and most of it was either within the community or within the family because sexual assaults happen most with people who have access to the child or the person and the person with the most access is not joe blue on the street it's typically a cousin or family member or somebody in the community right so you really have to have the ability to be empathetic without being easily scandalized, right? Yeah. Everything shouldn't be also shocking and, and upsetting to you where you're crying every day because then you're not going to survive in, in this, this area of law. But you also have to try to be empathetic. And I think Dustin and I've developed a really, really good balance for that. I think I started off a little bit less empathetic when I started doing family, but that's before I came to Alberta. By the time I got here, it was pretty good. Um, but Dustin has always had that kind of natural ability to really, you know, get where the client is coming from, but not be easily like affected by his files. Um, but there's some of the lawyers I know that really can't not take the matter on and take it home, right? Heather, I mean, you probably know some people that I'm talking about, but the family practice really affects the lawyer to the point where they almost can't function properly or they take on everything their client says as true, even though it's a very, very subjective view. And it's, you know, you, you really have to, it is a very difficult area of mm-hmm. law. I mean, it's, it is, it is something that you really have to have that personality for. And, um, I think, you know, definitely Heather has it. I have it. Dustin has it. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of family practitioners that, that have it. And, um, you just have to, if you don't have it, you have to develop it. So, yeah. So I don't know what all Dustin said, but, um, He's definitely well, a good He said person. a lot of mean things about you, but <laughs> never. That will Dustin will never do that. <laughs> said, we won't believe it until we actually have her on the show. Yeah. <laughs> and he was wrong about everything. Yeah. You're fantastic. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> so Heather, thank you. I wanted to, to thank you guys, both of you guys, for inviting me to do this because I think it's such an important um such an important thing. I don't know how you guys are going to edit this or make it shorter. I'm assuming you are, but no, we're going to let it fly. Really? Okay. Well, yeah. I guess I should have some kind of disclaimer. This is not legal advice for yours. We don't worry. This is just checking out information. We do that. We we have that at the top. Yeah. You should consult a lawyer for your own specific situation and all of that. Right. Okay. Well, I think you guys are doing great work. This is such a good idea. I always said in the back of my mind, I wanted to do a podcast and I just never, it's one of those things you should never get around to doing. So thank you for having me. No, well, yeah, we, uh, there's so much to talk about. So yeah, we'd love to have you on again. And congratulations to your parents. Canada's two newest citizens. Dual dual citizens. So yeah, they're (laughs) happy about that. So yeah, no, thank you so much. I will pass along your sentiments and, and yeah, good stuff. Okay. Well, it's been great having you and uh, yeah, we hope to see you soon. Yeah. Okay. Bye guys. Any information in this video is general information only and is not, nor is it intended to be legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. 
While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Malarick Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, RJFP, a subsidiary of Raymond James Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. When providing life insurance products, financial advisors are acting as insurance representatives of RJFP. Darkness of the Dales dissipates, declines because of he who told.